Very good morning to all of you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Brian, and I work on the pastoral t- uh, team here at SMAC2, and I'll be bringing God's Word to you today. As you came in, in your Bibles, you should have gotten two sheets of paper. On one of those sheets of paper, there should have been an outline, and that will help you to follow uh, the passage. As well, you've got your Bibles, and we'll be looking at your Bibles uh, in Acts. We're in the middle of a series of Acts for those of you who are new or visiting us today. Uh, most importantly, uh, we have God, so let's ask him for his help now as we read his word. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that your word is indeed living and active. It afflicts the comfortable and it comforts the afflicted. And so, Father, we pray that your word will have both effects on us today, where we need to be prodded a little bit. We pray that your word will prod us. And where we need reassurance, we pray that your word will provide real reassurance as we focus once again on the great truth that Christ died for sins and is risen as Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Now in Oxford on Broad Street, just outside Balliol College, you'll find a symbol of a cross set into the road itself. It's right there on the screen. And I used to walk past it quite often on the way to lectures. And in 1555, Nicholas Ridley, Archbishop of London, and Hugh Latimer, Bishop of Worcester, were led more or less to that very spot. One of them was 55 years old, the other 75. And there, right there, they were burned at the stake while Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, watched from his prison window nearby. Queen Mary had executed them because they had refused to deny those great biblical truths that it is Christ alone, it is grace alone that reconciles man with God. So Cranmer is now left with a choice. Deny those beliefs and live. Affirm those beliefs and be burned just like Latimer and Ridley were. And under great, great pressure, Cranmer gave in. Having been in prison for over two years, he finally signed papers denying those great biblical reformation truths. He didn't just sign one paper, he signed lots of papers. When the going got tough, Cranmer was unable to make a stand for Jesus. Now, all over the world today, Christians have always come under pressure. It's the same today, isn't it, in the 21st century as in the 15th. The Bible has never been shy about the reality of suffering for Christians. Now, sometimes it's just a consequence of living in a fallen world. There's disease, there's natural disasters, there's toil. Uh, sometimes it's the direct result of our own sin and foolishness. We have to reap the consequences of our own actions. Sometimes it's the result of God's discipline as he uses suffering to mold us to be more and more like Jesus. And sometimes it's simply because we are followers of Jesus. Now, many of us are familiar with the words of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, he must Take up his cross and deny himself 
and follow me. Christians will come under great pressure simply because they follow Jesus. And that will look different from place to place, of course. If you are a Christian in Nigeria today, you might suffer or even die because you follow Jesus and meet with his people. As you might have seen in the news for three weekends in a row now, uh, the churches have been attacked and people killed. Or if you are a Christian in Denmark today, you might be called a fanatic, a maniac, even a bigot. Because you follow Jesus and you uphold marriage as being only between one man and one woman, contrary to what the government says. Or if you're a Christian in Malaysia today, well, I'm sure you all can tell me better than I can tell you. Because you follow Jesus, you can't follow, you can't join in certain work or social practices at your job. You love your family, but you can't put them above Jesus. Although they want you to. Life is tough. The pressures are huge. And sometimes you find it hard not to give in. And you're thinking to yourself, when the going gets tough, what should I do? And that is the question facing the Apostle Paul. Like us, he is a follower of Jesus. And on this third missionary journey, he has been walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Perhaps uniquely to him, he has been walking in a way that especially parallels Jesus. Like Jesus, from Acts 19 verse 21 onwards, he has resolved to go to Jerusalem so that God's mission might be achieved. Like Jesus, he goes to Jerusalem despite knowing all the suffering that is to await him there. Well, we've seen that over the last couple of weeks, haven't we? And like Jesus, he will stand trial. And we'll see a bit of that in today's passage and we'll see that even more as we journey with Paul all the way to the end of Acts. Paul has been walking in the footsteps of Jesus, but the going is getting tough. He's already in Jerusalem, we know that from a few weeks ago, and there in 21 verse 32, the mob has beaten him up. In verse 33, he gets rescued and arrested. In verse 38, he discovers that the authorities think he's a terrorist. It's not going too well for him so far, is it? Last week, in chapter 22, we heard his speech to the Jews, and when he declares that God had sent him to the Gentiles, it only made them angrier. The crowd wants to kill him, 22 verse 23. And the Romans have to come in and rescue him again. And then what, they, what do they want to do? They want to whip him. This really isn't Paul's day, is it? And they only abandon the idea when they discover that he's a Roman citizen. So the Roman commander is scratching his head at this point. He still has no idea why the Jews are so upset. So he comes up with plan B. That's 22 verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he... Paul was being accused by the Jews. The commander unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Aha! 
I know he thinks if the Jewish council meets and questions Paul, I might finally figure out what's really going on and then I get to calm everyone down and finally I can go back to my wife and kids. For Paul though, the pressure's not off yet, isn't it? It's actually increasing. Well, let's see what Acts has to tell us today in chapter 23. When the going gets tough, what should we as followers of Jesus do? Well, firstly, we should testify to the risen Lord for his change your life. Testify to the risen Lord, his change your life. Look at verse 1 of chapter 23. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Paul looks straight into the eyes of these men before him and he says, I've got nothing to fear. I've always served God faithfully. Now Paul is not claiming to be sinless. This is the same person after all who told his friend Timothy that he was the chief of sinners. All he is saying is that as far as his conscience is telling him, he has always strived to live for God. And this provokes an immediate reaction from the high priest. Verse 2. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Now, there are a small group of people today who go around claiming that the Holocaust never happened. You know, Hitler and the Nazis never killed all those Jews in World War II. It's just a hoax, they say. And it's a very offensive and outrageous claim, isn't it? If you are Jewish, I imagine that you would react very strongly to it. Well, to Ananias, Paul has just made a very offensive and outrageous claim. How dare you, Paul? You claim to be faithful to God. And yet, earlier, you said that God is going to send you to the Gentiles? And furthermore, I heard that you brought Gentiles into the temple? What blasphemy is this? And so, he asked Paul to be struck. Well, Paul fires back. Verse 3, he's not going to take this. Verse 3, Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed war. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And like Jesus, Paul is condemning the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. As the high priest, Ananias should be acting as the righteous judge. And yet he treats Paul in an unrighteous way. He's meant to uphold the law. And yet he himself breaks the law. And the other members of the council, they're obviously astonished in verse 4. You see, in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, uh, God calls the false prophets whitewashed wars, and then he sends his judgment on them. And so could Paul really be equating the high priest with the false prophets? Verse 4, those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And then as we read on in verse 5, we discover something surprising. Verse 5. 
And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul had not realized who he was speaking to. And this, at first sight, might strike us as a bit strange. How could Paul not know? But remember, Paul has not been in Jerusalem much for a very long time. And it's also possible that Ananias was not wearing his official robes, as this was not a planned meeting. And so Paul didn't recognize that Ananias was the high priest. Now, whatever he thought of Ananias as a person, and we know from other sources that Ananias was a pretty nasty guy, he recognizes that the office of the high priest still demands respect. Certainly, God's word requires it, as Paul's quoting of Exodus 22 verse 28 shows. Perhaps Paul, mindful that he had just accused the high priest of hypocrisy, did not want to be a hypocrite himself. After all, if he wrote these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12, it's on the screen, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Then he should live up to those words, shouldn't he? So he apologizes and submits to God's word. In the proceedings now, they take a different turn. Paul notices that the council is made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. Verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, right, so you see that he's noticed Sadducees, Pharisees. Both parties are quite different. The Sadducees were known to be more pro-Rome, for example, whereas the Pharisees were more anti-Rome. But the biggest difference between them is found in verse 8. Verse 8. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, no angel, no spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. The, Pharisee, the, sorry, the Sadducees basically don't believe in an afterlife, whereas the Pharisees do. Now that we know this, notice what Paul does in verse 6. Paul cries out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. He pinpoints the hope of the resurrection as the key issue. Result, verse 7. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Or look again at verse 9. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? There is great dispute and great confusion. Now, at first glance, it looks like Paul has been very clever. It looks like he's engaging in a divide and rule game, isn't it? And if we take this episode on its own, that's a very understandable conclusion. However, when we look at Paul's trials later on in Acts, as he stands before various kings and governors, 
we begin to notice that he raises the issue of the resurrection in every single one of them. He does so even when it doesn't lead to the same kind of confusion and disruption that it does here. So that leads me to suspect that Paul is not simply playing politics. There's more going on. So the question is raised. Why does Paul decide to focus on the hope of the resurrection? Well, it seems to me that there are quite a few good reasons. For one, it is precisely because Jesus is risen that Paul can go out and reach to the Gentiles. After all, it is the risen Jesus who tells his followers, go and make disciples of all nations. It is the risen Jesus who brings in the age of the new covenant so that Gentiles can become fellow citizens with God's people and part of God's household. And the risen Jesus is going to be the judge of everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. See, earlier in Acts, in chapter 17, verse 30 to 31, it should be on the screen, Paul tells us this, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has a fix, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed, that's Jesus, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul knows that for the council to understand why he has to go to the Gentiles in the first place, they have to grasp, they have to understand the resurrection of Jesus. Furthermore, the hope of the resurrection is also foundational to Paul's testimony, isn't it? How did Paul become a Christian? He met the risen Jesus, he told us that last week. Paul understands that this lies at the heart of the gospel. Christ died for sins and is raised as Lord. The resurrection endures that though we were dead in sin, we are made alive in Christ. The risen Lord has changed Paul's life. And that's how he keeps going, isn't it? He knows that death is not the end. He knows that his final destination is a new body in the new heavens and the new earth. And so he can face any kind of pressure now, even here before the Jewish council. So what about followers of Jesus today? What do we do under pressure? Now we are to testify to the risen Lord for his change our lives. We testify with integrity to Jesus, both with our words and our deeds. See, Paul was not ashamed to declare the resurrection as good news, as true hope, even though he knew it would not go down well with the Sadducees. And our testimony to Jesus might not always go down well with our colleagues at work or our parents at home. To declare the resurrection, you see, is to declare that one day there will be judgment, which might be an insult to all our friends who eat and drink and live as if the day is all there is. Or to declare the resurrection is to declare that Jesus 
is the Lord of my life now. Not me, not my boss, not my parents. And that might be something that they don't want to hear. Proclaiming Jesus as crucified and resurrected challenges the way the world views things in general. For the Sadducees, they were challenged one day on their belief that there is no resurrection, no afterlife. And the Pharisees are challenged as well, aren't they? They might believe in a general afterlife, but now they are confronted and they are challenged. Would they believe in the particular resurrection of Jesus Christ? A few years ago, uh, the president of the student body at Dartmouth College, which is one of the Ivy League uh, universities in America, uh, he was giving a speech to the incoming new students. And at the end of his speech, he began to talk about the importance of sacrifice. And then he cited Jesus as an example, before briefly going on to explain what Jesus achieves at the cross. Uh, he was a Christian. So huge controversy erupted. Many people criticized him. His own vice president called him an embarrassment. He said he had abused his position. But there were others who defended him. A Jewish student wrote in to say that though he did not agree with his beliefs, yet in the spirit of free speech, he was ready to keep on discussing about these matters with him. We are to keep on holding out the good news of Jesus, ready for Jesus himself to provoke and attract in equal measure. That's what happened at this Jerusalem Council meeting. That's what happened at Dartmouth College. And we can be sure that as we testify to Jesus, we are in the will of God. Look at verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Testifying to Jesus at Jerusalem was the right thing for Paul to do, even when the going got tough. And testifying to Jesus, wherever we are today, in word and deed, is the right thing for us to do even when the going gets tough. More briefly, I also want to draw attention to the manner, the way in which Paul testified to Jesus. See, under pressure, it's easy for us to get defensive, isn't it? We immediately move into an us-versus-them mode. See, we end up being self-pitying and self-righteous when facing suffering and persecution. But look at Paul. He is both courageous and humble. He is courageous for he is not afraid to point out when he has been mistreated. At the same time, he is humble. For as soon as he realizes that he is at fault in dishonoring the office of the high priest, he is ready to admit it. When God's word confronts him, he submits to it. Is that our attitude? When God's word tells us that we are to honor our parents and our bosses, 
even if they are treating us unfairly, they're getting or they're getting on our nerves, are we quick to listen and obey? Or do we resist God? Do we say, ah, but God, he, he did this and she did that, and what about my rights? Do we expect the other party to say, sorry, but never repent of the spirit of unforgiveness in our hearts? You see, we have been raised with Christ, so we set our minds on things above. We have new life, so we live like new creatures. The risen Lord has changed our lives, so we testify to Him in everything, in our words and in our actions. However, that's not all God wants to remind us of today from His Word. So as we look at the rest of the passage, we are now reminded that secondly, we are to trust in the Sovereign Lord. He holds our lives. Trust in the Sovereign God. He holds our lives. Now with all this confusion happening, we know in verse 10 that Paul has to be brought back into custody because things are getting increasingly violent. And it's fair to say that at this point, he probably is, one, he's probably is wondering, uh, what, what's going to happen next to me? Are things going to be okay? And in the midst of such uncertainty, God's reassurance comes true in verse 11. You see, God says, don't worry, Paul. I haven't lost control. Take courage, testify, and trust. I'm there with you. And in the unfolding drama that we are about to read in verses 12 to 35, it has three scenes to it, which I'm going to take you through in a moment, but it really only has one message. God hasn't lost control. Trust Him. So let's look at scene one, the plot hatch. The plot hatch, that's in verses 12 to 15. So in a dodgy coffee shop in the back lanes of Jerusalem somewhere, we get a whole group of 40 people, or more actually. They are munching on their last half-baked, half-boiled eggs and roti baka for a while. Why? Because they make a solemn oath that until Paul dies, well, no more kopi oil for them, no more nasi lemak. And the seriousness of this oath is underlined by the fact that it's mentioned three times in verse in verse 12, verse 14, and verse 20, uh, 21, we get the fact that they are bound by this oath repeated. They say that we are bound by this oath. Let me let you in on a little secret though. Apparently they had a get-out clause because according to Jewish law, if they didn't succeed, all they had to do was offer sacrifices at the temple to release them from their oath. So actually quite easy. Lah. But... Clearly, in taking this oath, they really do want Paul dead. And they will do everything in their power to make sure it happens. In verse 14 and 15, they work out the details. In verse 14, they went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. 
So there you have the plan laid out. Now we shift settings to scene two. The plot unmasked. The plot unmasked. Verse 16. Now the son of Poe's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Poe. Well, that didn't take long, did it? In verse 15, we get the details of this secret plot. In verse 16, the plot is no longer secret. Somehow or other, Poe's nephew heard about this ambush. Now, we don't know anything about Poe's nephew. We're not given his name. He doesn't appear to have a special status of any kind. In fact, up to this point, we didn't even know that Poe had family in Jerusalem. And if you look at verse 19, the behavior of the tribune towards him suggests that possibly he might have been a mere teenager because he just took him by the hand. So how did this guy find out? Well, we are simply not told. All we know is that while the Jews are busy hatching their plot, God's hand was at work too. And as is typical of God, he uses the lowly and the unknown to achieve his purposes. All it took this time was some anonymous teenager. And notice what else is going on. If Paul's nephew only tells this to Paul, it wouldn't do him much good, would it? After all, Paul can't do anything, he's in prison. But watch what happens. Verse 17. The soldier listens to a prisoner. Verse 18. The tribune listens to a soldier. Verse 19 to 22. The tribune listens to a boy. Again, we are not given many details, but that seems to me a remarkable chain of events. How often is it that a boy gets listened to? A prisoner? A lower-ranking soldier? And yet, things proceeded so smoothly so that the communication was clear-cut that we don't even notice it, actually. God's hand is at work in the unmasking of this plot. And so we move on to scene three. The plot disrupted. The plot disrupted. Now, there was no way the commander was going to let a prisoner die on his watch. So he makes a decision. Get Paul to go to Caesarea and let his superior, the governor Felix, take responsibility. And to play it safe, he's going to send a whole army with Paul. Look at verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. Once again, God's hand is at work. For Caesarea is simply the next stop onwards to Rome, which is where God wants Paul to be. And God does it in style. You know, Paul must have been pretty amused, isn't it, as he looked around him that night to see, wow, i got so many bodyguards with me. 
Actually, we find more unintended humor in the letter that the commander sends to Felix. Look at verse 25. And he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, that's his name, to His Excellency the Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Hang on, that was not quite how it happened, did it? You see, from last week, you might remember that he was moments from quipping Paul before Paul finally revealed to him his Roman citizenship. That little fact is conveniently left out. Or look at verse 30. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Well, no way Paul's nephew is going to get any credit. Instead, he wants to show himself as action man, isn't it? He's a decisive guy. The commander wants to be the hero. But while he's putting himself in the best possible light, he does mention something significant. Verse 29. Verse 29. He says that, I found that he, Paul, was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. In the eyes of the Roman law, Paul is innocent. The real question here is theological, not legal. From the viewpoint of the Romans, Paul is vindicated, is innocent. But what are followers of Jesus today to learn from this? The answer, trust in the sovereign God. He holds our lives. From an earthly perspective, Paul must have felt great pressure and uncertainty. He's being marched from prison to prison. His own people are planning to kill him. Imagine if you knew that 40 people had swore to see you to your death, no matter what. The people currently protecting him are people who don't care for him. It's not like the Romans have any special interest in keeping Paul alive. But Paul kept testifying faithfully to to Jesus and he kept faithfully, uh, sorry, he kept trusting God to work out things for the good of those who love him. Now obviously that doesn't mean that Paul will not suffer anymore. It doesn't even mean that his situation is resolved. All that has happened is that he has just avoided being murdered for the moment and he's just going to see yet another Roman authority. But God hasn't lost control. He knows what he's doing. And I imagine that some of us today are also in seasons of uncertainty and anxiety. Perhaps there are pressures at work, in your family, or in a relationship. And they're wearing you down. There are pressures on you just to ignore Jesus just a little bit more. Not to listen to his word so much. Not necessarily deny him, just occasionally close your ears a little bit. There are pressures on you not to walk the way of wisdom. Because it looks narrower and harder. 
Uh, God is calling you today not to shut your ears and eyes. God is saying, trust me, I haven't lost control. I know what I'm doing in this season of your life. So live for me, obey me, testify to me. Keep being kind and gentle with the people around you. Forgive those who hurt you. Love your enemies. Work hard at your job and studies. Be careful with your words. Give sacrificially. Keep encouraging other Christians. Share the gospel with non-Christians. Live in such a way that non-Christians don't have a bad word to say about you. Just like the Roman commander couldn't find Paul guilty of anything. Trust me, God says, I hold your life. Imagine if you saw the world from the Roman commander's perspective. In many ways, he's a good, disciplined man, especially compared to the Jews, isn't it? But to him, everything that is happening with regards to Paul must be just so confusing. He, he can't make sense of the opposition to Paul. And the reason he can't is because he doesn't know the risen Jesus. These are all just random events to him. But when we ultimately understand that everything happens within the sovereignty of God, that our lives are not random, we find reassurance. At the beginning of today's sermon, I told you the story of Thomas Cranmer but I haven't quite told you how it all ended yet. Although Cranmer signed those documents, denying those beliefs, Queen Mary decided to condemn him anyway. And just before being burned, he was asked to deny his faith again, this time in public. And this time, Cranmer refused. In fact, he denied his previous denial reaffirming his belief in grace alone. And at the point of his execution, he made sure that his right hand went into the fire first because it was his right hand that had signed those documents in the first place. There is a memorial of him as well as Ridley and Latimer today in Oxford. On it, there are symbols of two crowns a crown of thorns and a crown of glory. When the going got tough, Cranmer remembered grace and he came true. He testified to God and trusted in God alone. He followed his Lord's path. Thorns on the way to glory. When the going gets tough, Let's remember grace today. And let's testify to and trust God alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son Jesus who became man and who knows suffering just like us. 
And Father, thank you that he suffered even more than we did because he decided to go to the cross on our behalf. And we thank you that he was raised again. That he is the Lord who will one day come in glory and will judge the nations. And Father, as we live in this fallen world, will you help us to keep on testifying to the risen Lord, to recognize his authority, and will you also help us to remember your hand of sovereignty, that you will help us to trust you, to find reassurance in you. And so Lord, for those of us who are especially under great pressure today, please will you help us not to give in, but to continue to take up our cross by your grace, with the help of your Holy Spirit, will you strengthen us by your gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.